0: Believe in yourself cause it starts with you And then everyone else will believe you too And if it looks
1: like you're the only believer around Just keep on believing, don't put yourself down Just believe
0: Our guest this week grew up in Detroit, Michigan and in 1978 at age 19 He started a game manufacturing company in his parents' basement, producing games he had invented. His first big success came in 1982 when he invented the Phase 10 card game, and today it's the second best-selling card game in the world. He's the author of The Simple Plan, Six Easy Steps to Make Millions from Your Ideas. His name, Ken Johnson, and I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk. 760 W.J.R. I'm Jack Prasula. This is Anything Is Possible. And we're talking to a fascinating young man, Ken Johnson, who came up with the board game Phase 10 and 80 million copies later, it's doing okay. Ken, welcome. A real honor to have
1: you. Thank you, Jack. I'm happy to be here.
0: Um, Can we start by you leading us in an opening prayer tonight?
1: Sure. Thank you. Uh, Dear Lord and Father, we thank you for the opportunity to sit down and and talk and share ideas and help one another in our journey through this life. Uh, May you continue to bless us and bless the efforts of all people seeking to benefit others and help other people as they journey through their lives in this world that we live in all things we ask in the name of your great son and our Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you. Let's go back. Your childhood, you're one of three children. Talk about your childhood and your mom and your dad, please.
1: Sure. Uh, thanks, uh, Jack. So I, I guess we had a relatively normal childhood. My my father was a, a GM a worker, factory worker in our neighborhood. There were a lot of factory workers working for one of the big three at the time. And, and so we, you know, we, we always had things. We didn't struggle so much uh, as a lot of people uh, did. Um, my father also worked a second job. He painted houses. And so when I was 12, he started me painting houses with him to try to teach me a, a work ethic. And so I opened my first bank account at 12 and uh, had that bank account until I started my business. It was from those funds I was able to start my business. So I saw the benefit of saving money even at a at a young age.
0: What's the biggest thing you learned from dad, and what's the biggest thing you learned from mom, Ken?
1: Uh, Let's see. Let's start with my mom. She was always very patient with us and uh, would talk with us and try to work through our issues. So she was very good at at just being a a calm uh, person in the household. Uh, What I learned from my dad, though, was, again, a work ethic. And responsibility. I mean, he, he laid responsibilities on me at a very young age. And so he taught me the importance of being responsible, uh, doing what you say, and uh, always trying to do a good job for people. And that's what he always instilled and what he did when he worked uh, painting houses and, of course, when he worked on his job at GM.
0: You mentioned that at 12, you started painting with him. Yes. What's, what did that teach you?
1: Well, you know, it taught me that you you know, you, you work and you, you earn a dollar. You know, if you put in the hours, put in the work, you earn money. And he taught me to save a portion of that money. Don't spend it all in one place, but to save money and, and because I would need it later. So uh, I think working at such a young age taught me the value of, of working, earning money and saving money.
0: All right. What was your favorite toy game growing up? <laughs>
1: Uh, you know, we played a lot of games in our household. There were three of us kids. I actually had an older sister who was not in the home, but th- there were three of us living in the house, and and uh, we played a lot of games. I would say, back in those days, my favorite was probably Monopoly. You know, it was probably everyone's favorite back then. Um, but we also played a number of other games, pretty much everything on the market, from life to aggravation to careers, a number of games.
0: All right, at 12 years old, you're painting houses with your dad, but at 12 years old, you also created your first game. I think it was entitled Dice Baseball.
1: Please. Right. Right. So it, it was round 12 that, again, because we played so many games, um, we all, three, the three of us became very creative. Uh, and we would take, for instance, Monopoly, and we put two Monopoly boards uh, together, and we Form a figure eight so we had the corners together and you'd go around the board so it extended the game but it made it much more interesting playing Monopoly on two boards um so yeah we were always very creative so at one point we uh, my brother and I collected tops baseball cards and we thought wouldn't it be cool if we had a baseball game utilizing the top baseball cards as the players and so we developed dice baseball, which essentially was very simple. You had uh, four die and you throw them. And over the years, we, we figured out the odds of various throws. You know, you could throw up, for instance, a, a 10 more often than a, a two, a four. You know, to getting one pip on each dice, that's much more difficult than throwing certain numbers. So we figured out which numbers were more likely to come up. Those were the numbers that were produced outs in some way, whether there's a strikeout, a flyout, or something. And the numbers that were a little more difficult to throw, they achieved greater success, like home runs and singles and so on. So anyway, we developed the game, uh, started playing from the time I was probably 12 to 19, and at that point decided to put it into the marketplace.
0: That dice baseball, that initial invention, what did that teach you?
1: Well, you know, putting it out, I was able to get into the marketplace through Kmart on a national basis, which was, you know, uh, looking back on it was quite a challenge, but that happened. and But it was not super successful. In fact, it was not successful at all. It was cut within the first couple of months. However, I learned a lot from that experience. I I learned how to test a game with potential players. Um, I learned that you play test it with people to get their feedback, make sure the instructions convey the game in a very concise way, very understandable way. And I learned more about packaging games from that first effort. And so when Dice Baseball was cut, I took the things I learned from it and, and put those concepts into play when I developed Phase 10.
0: Okay, let's jump to 1978. Mm-hmm. You're 19 years old, mm-hmm. you got a head of hair, <laughs> All right, that never ends. And you're working at Ford Motor Company as a welder mm-hmm. in their River Rouge plant. right. Um, and you start a game manufacturing company in your parents' basement producing games you invented. How'd you ever do that?
1: So I took the, I was working at Ford, as you mentioned, and it was a during period, I think a period when I was laid off for a few weeks and I started thinking, you know, I, I, as much as I actually enjoyed welding, and um, but I said, you know, I really would like to have a business of my own. So I wasn't sure what to get into, and one day I just started thinking, you know, I'll take that board game, that baseball board game that we played as kids for seven years, and let me see if I can get it into the market. So uh, one thing led to another, as I mentioned, and I was able to get Kmart to to buy it. It took a took a little effort, you know, it took a year or so of of Trial and error, uh, building prototypes, uh, finding graphic artists, and doing all those things that were more difficult to do back in the day when you didn't have, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have Google, you didn't have social media. And you had to literally go out to the library, look up a Thomas Register to find various manufacturers and things. So it was a bit more challenging than it might be today. But I was able to come up with all the uh, suppliers and uh, develop the game and convince Kmart to buy them and and actually started licensing to another company. Once I had developed enough prototypes and convinced Kmart to buy them, I started licensing uh, to another company who then produced and shipped all of the units uh, to Kmart.
0: We're talking to Ken Johnson. When we come back, we're gonna ask him what it was like being a 19-year-old kid going to the corner of Coolidge and Big Beaver to the world headquarters of Kmart, sitting in the lobby trying to convince purchasing to take this new idea. And I'm Jack Rasula, and this is Anything Is Possible on News Talk 760 WGR. Welcome back to Anything Is Possible. I'm Jack Rasula. we're with Ken Johnson. Ken, you're 19 years old, 1978, you go to the Troy Headquarters of Kmart Corporation, you're in the lobby waiting to talk to purchasing. What were you saying and thinking to yourself in the lobby?
1: Well, it was interesting. I was obviously nervous. I had never tried to sell my games to any company, certainly not one as large as Kmart, which at that time was probably the number one or number two retailer in the country. So I was a bit nervous about what I was trying to do, having never done this before. And uh, so literally I was sitting in a lobby praying, I spent most of the time while I was waiting, praying and just praying that, you know, I could present my my games in a way that was understandable. And, and I wasn't looking to get rich or become famous. I was just hoping to be able to make a living doing what I enjoyed. And I was blessed to be able to do that. And you
0: convinced purchasing at Kmart to do it. Who was the person that took the unbelievable chance on you?
1: I'll never forget him. His name was George Christensen. And uh, he took a chance on, he called me the kid from Detroit. Whenever I came back to visit him, he says, oh yeah, you're that kid from Detroit. And so uh, he took a chance on me. Um, I think I was able to convince him that if I was given an opportunity, I wouldn't let him down and I would work hard at it. And he saw something in me, I'm not exactly sure, but I did ask him later on what it was. Um, because people were astounded at, at, you know, what we were able to accomplish at such a young age and with no experience. And so I asked him, I said, you know, what, what made you give me a chance? And he said, you know, you just had um, some confidence and I I just wanted to see if you could do it because you you seemed so sure. I, I thought maybe you could do it. So he gave me a chance and I remember after he gave me that first story, he, as I was walking out of his, his office, he says, Ken, don't let me down. Hmm. And I assured him I would not. And I think he would say if he was still with us that I did not. So no, I didn't let him down.
0: You've made him proud. You've made him <laughs> proud. All right, let's jump to 1987. You come up with a game, Phase 10. Tell us about
1: Phase 10. Okay, so uh, after the initial game, dice baseball, did not do very well in the market, and Mr. Christensen actually called me and said he was going to cut it. Uh, somewhere along that time, he told me that, you know, the number one game in the country, and probably the world at that time, was Uno. And Uno was hitting its peak. It was in its 11th year. This is 1981, actually. And he says, look, Ken, you know Uno's doing really good, and you know if you could come up with a game like that, you, know, you could really do well. So I went back home, and I thought, well, I need to come up with a card game. And I need to come up with a card game based in a concept people understand, much like Uno is based on Crazy 8s. I wanted to come up with a card game based in a, a form of card game play that was already understood, but with various twists and turns, much like Uno had twists and turns on Crazy 8s. So I thought I'd base uh, Phase 10 in running. And uh, that led me to the concepts of Phase 10, and I tested it and played it with a number of people. They enjoyed it and um, went back to that buyer and presented it to him. And he said, OK, let's give it a shot. And and he did. And he put it on the shelf and he started. He says, this time, Ken, I'm not going to give you the whole chain, though. We're going to start with just 20 stores here in Metro Detroit, and let's see how you do with those. So I went to work in my parents' basement, producing enough games to fill that order and and kind of the rest is history.
0: Um, you own the trademark of the name, Phase 10. Why the name Phase 10?
1: Interesting. Um, so when I was developing the game and before I actually started testing it with various groups, I was trying to think of a name. Uh, and I developed these 10 phases or contracts and it, that you play in the game. And I said, okay, what am I going to call it? My first thought was 10 Steps. And something that didn't ring very good. And then I thought uh, step 10. And that still didn't quite have the ring and said, hmm, well, these are kind of phases you have to go through one phase after another. So why don't I call it phase 10? And once I said that to myself, phase 10, that was it. I was stuck on that name and and went to the trademark office. uh, Actually, a few years later, after talking to my attorney, I didn't do it right away. Um, but I thought it was such a good name, and I went with that and presented it to the buyer. He thought it was a good name because it was different, and uh, that's how we came up with it. It was just a matter of looking at how the game played and coming up with a concept that was yet different in terms of a name.
0: 43 years later, it's still selling very well. You've sold nearly 80 million copies of Phase 10. It's the number two best-selling board game in history,
1: other than Uno. Mm-hmm.
0: Um How do you explain the longevity of it?
1: You know, that's a very good question, uh, Jack. I think I discovered early on that the game appealed not just to kids, but it appealed to uh, everyone, you know, anyone. We had retirees in Florida after the first few months of selling it, writing me and saying, hey, we love this game. Where can we buy it? So I saw instantly that it appealed to young people, and people in their 80s. So I think because it appeals to uh, particularly adults, they enjoy it, it's something they sit down and play with other couples that come to visit. Those people play, they then go by and play with a different group of people and it builds from there, because we never advertised at all. And it was strictly word of mouth, but I think it's the game play, it appeals to adults. And while UNO has its appeal to young people, because uh, it's so simple and easy. Phase 10, while easy, it appeals to adults as well. It has enough challenge where adults find it interesting and challenging enough where they enjoy playing it. And that's the key to phase 10 success.
0: Another blessing that God gave you these yes. 50 yes. years is that you learn to negotiate well early on. What's the key to learning how to negotiate?
1: Uh, Well, it was funny when I did my first couple of negotiations for my license deal and my negotiations with my, uh, with even Mattel, uh, what was that in 2010 when I negotiated my license with them? um, I just initially early on, before I even hired attorneys, I signed my first deal without even consulting the attorney. I looked at the contract and it just made sense to me. I knew what I wanted to retain, which is ownership of the brand, ownership of the copyrights and trademarks. And the rest of the agreement just made sense. Uh, anything that didn't make sense to me, I challenge. So I don't recommend that to everyone. It's probably better to have a, cons- a attorney to look at it. But when you're doing that initial review yourself, just look at it and see if it makes sense. Do the terms make sense? Is it Does it meet your goals? Uh, my goal was to retain ownership. So it met that goal and then I had other goals. And so as long as it had those things or I could add them to the agreement, another example would be, I wanted my trademark and my copyright notice to be on every game. Now, that was just, just made sense to me. But later on, I discovered that that's common in license agreements where you retain ownership of the brand is that those notices are always there. So. You just take ideas and concepts that make sense, and then once you've done that initial stage, you might consult your attorney to make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed.
0: Speaking of dotting the I's and T's, if you want to learn more about them, www.kenjohnsonspeaks.com. And when E.F. Hutton speaks, we listen, and when Ken Johnson speaks, you should listen. And I'm Jack Crisola, and this is Anything Is Possible on News Talk 760 WJR. This is Anything Is Possible. I'm your host, Jack Crisola. We're with Ken Johnson. And in 2012, he was nominated for a taggy award which is the Oscar of the toy and game industry. Early on, 19 years old, go to Kmart, you're working as a welder at the Rouge plant. You had a real can-do attitude, which a lot of people don't have today. How does a young person get a can-do attitude, Ken?
1: Well, you know, that's a very good question. I I think... Uh, you have to believe what's like the title to your show, anything is possible. And I don't say that just because I'm on this show. I firmly believe that if you stick your mind to something, put your mind to something, anything is possible. Um, I think the only impediment to success or meeting goals, whatever they might be, is yourself. External uh, roadblocks they're external. As long as you believe you can achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve, then you will find ways to get there. You will find ways to, uh, to go beyond those hurdles, uh, to step beyond those rocks and move forward. So to me, the, the basic thing is confidence that you can achieve whatever it is you're trying to achieve. And with that confidence, you'll find ways to overcome those obstacles.
0: Zig Ziglar the greatest motivational speaker in our lifetime. His first book he ever wrote was See You at the Top. And 41 times in that book, he said, you can get everything in life you want if you help enough other people get what they want. Mm-hmm. A lot of people today say it's a win-lose, you know, you're going to get the better of other You've lived this. You can get everything in life you want mm-hmm. if you help other people get what they want. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that win-win situation.
1: Well, that's a good point. You know, so uh, right now I'm involved in private equity. I founded a company a couple years ago and we negotiate with business owners all the time to acquire their businesses. And, and most of those uh, acquisitions involve that owner or that founder staying on in some capacity and perhaps retaining some equity. But as I just told one of the gentlemen we're negotiating uh, currently, I said, look, If I wake up the next morning after we've negotiated this deal and you wake up the next morning after this deal and you're not happy, then I've got a problem, okay? I have a problem because we're partners. I can't uh, achieve rather the success I'm looking to achieve in this deal if you're not happy. So uh, I think as part of what you're saying, when you're working with other people, if you help people achieve what they're trying to achieve your goals will be met also if you are for me if you're building a business and you're and your focus is making money then people often do things with that focus in mind and it doesn't benefit their customers so to me the thing to do is focus on your customer how can you make that customer happy how can you fulfill your job your role as best you can and in doing so money will come or Uh, the achievement will come. Focus on your customer, focus on your boss in terms of what they require of you. Focus on your job and whatever you want from there will happen automatically. If you provide a good product or a good service and you focus on doing that, money will come. And, you know, as I said, I never hoped to get rich making games. I just wanted to make a living. So by producing the best games I could, it afforded me the opportunity to make uh, a good income as well.
0: Talking to Ken Johnson, and one of the games he invented was Phase 10, which has now sold 80 million copies. You're a lifelong student. In today's world, you have to keep earning while you're learning. Mm-hmm. You've continued to do that. Talk about being a constant, lifelong student.
1: Well, uh, I read all the time. I think we, you and I talked about this. Uh, I have a library. Two, actually, two libraries in my home. One is a functional office, and the other one is more of a formal meeting area. So I have a lot of books. I believe in learning, always learning, um, because if if you're not learning, then the world is passing you by. That's that's my opinion. You know, particularly if you're in a business or have a career, uh, your competitors in that same business and career will be advancing and learning, and if you're not, you're going to fall behind. So. Not only from a competitive perspective, you need to continue to learn, but also just from a a perspective of just building your knowledge, building your character, and and understanding the world, Uh, I think it's important to continue to learn and, and keep yourself up to date in what's happening.
0: Speaking of continuing to learn and reading, you're the author of The Simple Plan, Six Easy Steps to Make Millions from Your Ideas. Talk to us about what we should take from that book.
1: Uh, I think the key there is that there are really, in my mind, six steps. And um, I discuss the mindset an inventor must have. I discuss the various obstacles, uh, the things they should put in place, what license agreements look like, what terms of those agreements should be included, and so on. But the steps are real simple. It just starts with evaluating your idea. The six steps are evaluation, Um, building a prototype, evaluating that prototype, uh, engaging in um, a provisional patent application if you're seeking a patent, that's step four. Step five is other uh, intellectual property protections. It could be trademarks, copyrights, or what have you. And then the sixth step is either licensing or venturing uh, your invention. Licensing it to other companies to produce and pay a royalty or venturing, basically meaning starting a business or producing that product or delivering that service. Um, So the basic premise of the book is to follow these six easy steps. But the first one, again, being evaluation. That's the most critical thing in developing a new business or uh, bringing a new invention to market is doing an honest evaluation of this idea before you start spending a lot of money on patents or doing other things. You need to know, is this idea sound? Does it have commercial viability? And it's only by doing an evaluation, as I outlined in the book, can you truly determine.
0: We're talking to Ken Johnson. The name of the book, again, is The Simple Plan, Six Easy Steps to Make Millions from Your Ideas. And when we come back, we're going to talk to him about something that he mentioned a new venture with Spring Arbor University, entitled Freedom Partners. And I'm Jack Prisula, and this is Anything is Possible on News Talk. 760-WJR. Jack Krizula, host of WJR's Anything is Possible, the weekly radio visit, brings his 15 years of inspirational storytelling to hardcover. With God, anything is possible. Anything of Jack's more than 750 tales of defeating odds and achieving the extraordinary. Like Bob Woodruff, whose job covering the war in Iraq nearly cost him his life. And Nick Vujicic, the limbless evangelist who has stunned millions with his message of acceptance and grace. With God, anything is possible. Order now while signed copies are still available at trustinusllc.square.site. That's dot And as Jack says... Make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spohol.
1: I'm
0: Jack Basula This is Anything is Possible. We're talking to Ken Johnson since 2013. He's been the founder of the Inventors Academy which is a free online community designed to provide education, resources, and community to both new and experienced inventors. But let's talk about Freedom Partners, this partnership with Spring Arbor University. Ken, first tell us about Spring Arbor and why did you choose Spring Arbor University?
1: So Spring Arbor is a Christian uh, university, a Christian higher education and it has been, it's over 100 years old, and its focus is, is being true to Christian principles while uh, supplying a, a very robust uh, education to its students. And so I chose Spring Arbor uh, for this particular initiative because because I, I believe in its values and its mission. Uh, I started speaking there a few years ago as a speaker to their students about business and, and uh, product development, and Over uh, several years, I eventually became a a member of the foundation board, and then a couple years ago, a member of the board of trustees. Um, But I I basically chose them because they are in need of raising their uh, endowment, uh, building their endowment, and so we're looking for creative ways to do that. And thus, I, I came up with the idea of what we now call the Spring Arbor Group which is a private equity firm. And it's probably, as far as I know, the only mission-driven private equity firm in the country.
0: Um, so then you go to alumni and friends mm-hmm. to try to convince them to invest some of their money into this. Why should they do that, Ken?
1: Well, uh, for two reasons. One is after once we found a, a target, a business that we want to acquire, We try to make sure that there's enough uh, return on the investment to attract the investors. So we wanna beat the market in in terms of what they could earn uh, in the marketplace, in uh, Wall Street, bond market, what have you. So we present a case that demonstrates a good return on their investment. And the second reason they do it is because, again, being mission-driven, a portion of the profits is spun off to Spring Arbor to help the university and build its endowment. The friends of an alum of Spring Arbor enjoy the opportunity to get a great return and uh, see the mission of the university fulfilled.
0: What was the first investment this entity made?
1: Uh, We bought a company in Troy, uh, New Image Building Services, which is a commercial cleaning firm. Uh, It has a a who's who list of customers uh, in the metro area, everything from bedrocks operations downtown to uh, we just secured the McNamara terminal uh, at the airport also uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield BASF uh, AAA in a number of states a number of of large uh, blue chip companies so we're very happy to make that acquisition and things are going as planned and should offer a good return as well as a good service to our customers.
0: Why should an entrepreneur consider selling some of his or her business to this entity
1: well our, our goal there is to uh, offer the uh, seller a fair deal a good price and uh we our our, our uh, targets have been happy with the deals we've presented to them we're planning to close another deal in about another month month and a half and then uh, we'll be closing another one in the first quarter of next year but i think all of our uh, founders and sellers would agree that we are very fair in dealing with them, offer them a good price, a competitive uh, price for their businesses. And in most cases, uh, they can retain some equity and and some involvement if they're not ready to retire entirely.
0: All right. Um, If you want to learn more, www.kenjohnsonspeaks.com. We're talking about Freedom Partners and... You always got to stay busy at the end of the year. If I may interject,
1: uh, Jack, another way to get information about Freedom Partners um, is to go to springarborgroup.com. That is the private equities website. And they can get more information about what we do and how and why we do it. Again, that's springarborgroup.com.
0: All right. At the end of the year, you've got two more books coming out. The Mm -hmm. first is Success by Thought. a sneak preview, <laughs> what should we take from that book?
1: Uh, pretty much as the title uh, conveys, success come from, comes from thought. As we talked about earlier, uh, depending on how you view um, the world and your level of confidence and your ability to achieve, that will determine how successful you are. And success is a subjective term. Uh, my view of success might be different from yours, or from the next guy, but whatever you think success is, it all comes from how we think. Okay, not from external things, but how we think. Uh, How much confidence we have, do we believe we can achieve this? Are we gonna let every little obstacle stop us? How we think about those external things is what determines whether we're successful.
0: All right, the second book coming out is From Scratch. What's the keys of that book?
1: That book goes into more detail of my story, my journey from a 12-year-old to my uh, current age and how I've developed not only the game business, but some of the other things I've been involved in and the lessons I learned along the way. So I call it From Scratch because I started all this from nothing. And the idea is to show people how to to get, how to achieve success from scratch.
0: All right. You and I had a, lunch at Big Daddy's about a month ago. (laughs) And uh, during that lunch, you made a statement unsolicited. You said, Jack, all the success I've had, God did it. Mm
1: -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, as I mentioned, I prayed in the lobby of Kmart uh, while I was waiting for that first meeting. Um, I think that success is something that, you know, we, we, we help, we share in it. I mean, we have to get out of bed in the morning, right? We have to develop the skills to um, run our business, to develop our ideas, whatever it is, we have to do that. But I think all the good things come from, from God. And if we uh, make God our partner, if you will, um, we can only succeed.
0: I mentioned earlier in this segment that since 2013, you've been the founder of the Inventors Academy, which is a free online community, with the emphasis on free. Tell us about it, and why do you do it for free?
1: Well, it's again, an online community, and uh, we also I'm also a member of the Inventors Association of Metro Detroit, IAMD.org. And what we do is help uh, inventors, of all stripes, doesn't matter what their product is, um, the concepts from um, taking your your invention from idea to market are the same. They're 99% the same, whether you have this widget or a new vacuum cleaner, the con- from concept to market is pretty much the same journey. And so with the Inventors Academy and the Inventors Association of Metro Detroit, we try to help uh, new inventors understand how to navigate from concept to the marketplace, uh, when and how to uh, patent their inventions, whether it's even feasible or advisable to patent an invention. Most inventors think the first thing they've got to do is get a patent. And in my view, that's not the first thing. Uh, Roughly 95, 96% of inventions that are patented do not yield enough income from that patent to recover the cost of the patent. So the person has spent money on patent that they will never recover the money uh, spent. Uh, That's 98% of the time, 95% of the time. So why is that? That's because the person got a patent before they determined the commercial viability of the invention or have a path to take it to market. So what we try to do in these organizations is help people understand what that path looks like, when and how they should get a patent, if at all, and, and then how to secure a license agreement with a manufacturer in that field who can produce, sell, and pay them a royalty. Because again, in most cases, most inventors should not actually start a manufacturing company. They should rather license to someone else.
0: And Johnson, what you've achieved is unbelievable, but more impressive, much more impressive, is the values of how you've done it. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Jack.
0: Please join us next Saturday. Until then, I'm Jack Brasula. Thanks for listening and make it a great week because with God, anything is possible. Spawn. Believe.